during my graduation, I was high. I was, it was wow. not a good thing. It was not a good thing. My family could see it. I thought I was hiding it so well too. That's, oh, that's the fallacy that. right there is like, as an addict, you think yes. you're hiding it so well. But no, they can see when you're like walking and you're like locking, I was locking myself out of my apartment. Welcome to What I Meant to Say. I'm your host, Wendy Jones, founder of Be Better Media and a mom of four, passionate about human connection. Throughout my journey, I have experienced many What I Meant to Say moments. But since life doesn't give us do-overs, I've created a space to reflect and tell our stories again, with a little more grace for ourselves and the hope that we can help others and be better for having listened. Welcome to What I Meant to Say. I'm your host, Wendy Jones, and I'm here today with Taylor Grant, and she has a beautiful recovery story that she's willing to share. And there's nobody that hasn't been touched by um, addiction in their family and their lives. I think it's so prevalent in American life today. And I'm so grateful that you're here today and willing to share your story. So thank you. Thank you, Wendy. I'm, I'm happy to be able to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. And um, you and I have shared a little bit um, conversation before. Yeah. Um, and the fact that it takes a lot of bravery to sit here and be willing to share what you've been through and hundred percent. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, let's dive right in and sure. You know, can you share with me how, how you found yourself, um, in that addictive pattern and this recovery journey that you're on? Absolutely. So my addictive tendencies began when I was actually quite young. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't find alcohol or drugs till I was 21 years old. But I grew up a ballet dancer, a horseback rider, um, and I got a lot of attention for my performance capabilities, my good dancing technique, all of that. And so I quickly became addicted to that dopamine feeling of being recognized mm -hmm. and congratulated and seen and the attention, the addiction to attention began at a very early age for me. I'm talking like six years old, mm -hmm. really early. And then what happened is I started to experience later in my adolescent years, intermittent bouts of depression. Um, I had a lot of anxiety as a child. My mom remembers changing my diaper on the diaper changing yeah. table and I was shaking. Like it was an ingrained. Yeah, your nervous system already at that young age. Was shot. Yeah. It was like adrenal overload. And you probably, so you came into this world highly sensitive. Hypersensitive, yeah. yes. Highly sensitive human. Um, very empathetic. I've always been able to really feel other people's energies, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Oh, yeah. The frequencies and energies that they're emitting. And from a young age, I would absorb those energies. Yeah. And so I would take on a lot of people's, be it pain, overexcitement, yeah. um, sadness. Uh, my father lost his father a couple months before I was born. So I was born into a grieving family. Yeah. I was the first life after a very profound death. Mm-hmm. And so my dad wouldn't put me down and this is no judgment on his part. Yeah. It's just how he coped with yeah. his grief at the time. He didn't want to put me down. He didn't want my mom to hold me. I was his. And I believe looking back now as an adult that that energy and that fear, I think that he was admitting unconsciously, it seeped into me yeah. from a very young age. Yeah. Um, so going back to kind of how I got into the physical addiction, it started mental. It started mentally trying to be perfect, perfectionism. Um, as we'll talk about a little later, you know, my parents had a happy, beautiful marriage for 12 years, but then unfortunately it became a very volatile divorce, mm -hmm. a very litigious divorce. And those, um, and how old were you when that? They separated when I was eight okay. years old. Mm -hmm. um, and as I've talked about, I can feel people's energies. Yeah. And though it was very hidden under the rug, yeah. um, the discomfort, the anger, it was still palpable. Yeah. And I could sense the tension, yes. right? In the family yes. system. Um, so I was young. 
I was very young. I was eight when they separated and it was a very tumultuous separation. And then they started actually going to court and battling over child custody matters um, from when I was like eight to I think 12 years old. It was around, it was a long let out divorce. It was very long. It wasn't quick. Um, so I, I observed that I observed those, you know, dysfunctional conflict management patterns that they showed. Mm -hmm. And, um, it messed me up. I'll put it very straightforward. It really messed me up. It really harmed my self-esteem. I was a daddy's girl from the start. I was super attached to my father more than my mom. Mm-hmm. And so when he left the family unit um, for another person, I took it very personally and it did some sort of damage that was just catastrophic yeah. to my it self-esteem. Runs, it runs really deep. Really core. Daughter. It's a safety relationship. Yeah. And you probably have far more psychological terms as a grad student going through to become a family therapist, but that is a core wound. It is a core wound. Yeah, it's a root chakra. Yeah. Wound. yeah. It's an obstruction of the root chakra. Yeah. Right? Completely displaced. And the root chakra is down here. <laughs> That's yeah. why I'm yeah. pointing to it. But um, that was very quickly eradicated that feeling of safety and comfort and stability. So my anxiety really increased. Um, my depression became very severe in high school. I was doing everything I could, um, to not isolate. So I was like, I put myself on the dance team. I was a straight A student. It was all about performance for me. I didn't have any pressure from my parents to be like a straight A student or anything. That was all pressure I put on myself. Yeah. Um, I wanted to be seen by my dad again because that wound, that father-daughter wound of not getting the, that vital attention I needed from my dad in my pivotal years of young adolescence was really hard. Yeah. Um, and so then what happened is, you know, I, high school was really not a fun time for me. It was one of the worst times of my life, actually. Mm. Like it was, I was very isolating Um, it was hard for me to make friends. Uh, I had social anxiety Mm -hmm. and I think it came from an obstructed view of self. Yeah. My, my self image was completely distorted. Yeah. I had eating disorder tendencies start to come on. I was also a ballet dancer. And so that culture, you know, Manhattan beach, also growing up in Manhattan beach, um, nothing wrong with Manhattan beach, but there's a culture there that's all about like kind of superficiality, how you look, how you perform. Yeah. Yeah. LA in general. What it looks like (laughs) instead of what it feels like. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. That's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, and so I became very good at suppressing my hurt feelings Mm -hmm. and, you know, I had a very volatile relationship with my father, unfortunately, um, in my teenage years, you know, I'm not going to, talk about really what happened with my dad. That's personal stuff, but he went through a lot of pain as well with the divorce as did our whole family. A lot of projections were going on. Um, it made me feel like it was my fault, even though now, of course, looking back at it as an adult, I know it's not my fault, but it very much felt that way. And so when I went to college and mind you, I didn't party at all in high school. I isolated. Yeah. I isolated. So I, I would not party. I never, I didn't kiss a boy till I was 21. Wow. I didn't drink alcohol till I was 21, nor do drugs or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like when I got to college, it was my time <laughs> yeah. to let loose right. and experience myself not so tethered to perfectionism, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah. It's the first time in your life where you, it's almost like you get to explore a new identity and you're on yeah. your own. Yeah. And yet it's still a safe place if you have the coverage of your parents, if you're there and your education yeah. is paid for. You know, the, if you don't have those stresses, college is one of the most free times yeah. of your life. And especially coming out of that pressure cooker that you're describing, that makes a lot of sense to me. Right? Yeah. And 
what was interesting, I, I had distance from that family unit as well. Yeah. And I felt a new sense of independence. Yeah. Um, I didn't feel like a caretaker anymore to my family. Yeah. There was in therapy that I'm learning about. We, we call, um, the dynamic where let's say two divorced parents or parents who are having difficulties in the relationship, they can't communicate properly with each other. Mm-hmm. They'll usually pull in a child or someone readily available in the family unit to triangulate the message. And it's called triangulation. So a lot of triangulation was happening in my family unit. Mm -hmm. And I think it was, my parents don't like, aren't educated on that. They don't know what's, it's not purposeful. It's very, it happens. It's so common in families. Mm -hmm. It's not always a bad, horrible thing either. Um, but in this scenario, it wasn't helpful. Yeah. So my dad would want me to tell my mom something. So it would go through me or financial intense pressure of what was happening in the unit would be told to me, a kind of a thing. Yes. Can you tell your father this when you see him? Can you tell your mother this? Um, Bad talking happened. It's very common in a hostile divorce. Yeah. Especially when my parents were very much in love. It was Hmm. a beautiful relationship that broke. So when there's love, it turns to hate pretty quick. Yeah. Right. Cause that's the opposite oh, emotion. Give me the chills. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm in college. I will say my first two years at college, I went to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Me too. I love that about us. Yeah. We have a lot in common. That's so awesome. It's so great when I found that out. Right. It is still my happy place. It's so. a beautiful place. Yeah. But I was for some reason like, you never leave yourself behind. So to, to, right. no matter how beautiful the place was, my anxiety and depression came with me, mm-hmm. right? Cause it lives up here. Um, and my first two years of college were really hard. I had grown really close to my mother, mm-hmm. um, during the divorce since my father used to be the sole like parent I would go to. He was mainly absent, mm-hmm. um, or, and was not emotionally available. So I then attached to my mom. And so then when I split from my mom and went to college, that was really hard on me. Yeah. I did have that really nice sense of independence, but I also had a lot of fear, yeah. a lot of cognitive dissonance going on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And I didn't really know my identity. I'd always attached an identity to, I'm a dancer, I'm a horseback rider. Um, yeah. I'm a student. So I did attach my identity at the time to being a student, but I didn't really know who Taylor was. Yeah. So what happened is after two years in college, um, I quickly discovered, and I was very isolating as well in college. I was continuing that dysfunctional pattern of isolating because yeah. of fear yes. of like being seen by people, being rejected by people yeah. really. Cause I'd been rejected in my mind mm-hmm. by my father. And that was such a pivotal loss that I was worried other people yeah. would reject me for whatever reason. And I found alcohol (laughs) and partying and alcohol is a widely accepted social norm in college. Yeah, for sure. Partying is so accepted and promoted. Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm really tired of isolating and being miserable. I'm really tired of this. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So I'm going to go party now. I'm going to let loose. Like I was talking about earlier Mm -hmm. and you know, I really enjoyed it (laughs) when I started drinking. It was, so it starts off like fun, carefree, fun. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Somewhat like modest, like safe kind of, Uh I guess you could say Yeah. it started off very like, wow, like I'm a party girl now, (laughs) you know, like I'm like, let's try fun. this new identity. Let's try this yeah. new identity. Let's grab yeah. onto this one. Let's see how the party girl goes for me. Uh-huh. Cause I used to be very shy, timid, but a brainiac, like very studious and academic kind of a nerd. Yeah. I'm tired of that. Yeah. Let's try this. Let's wear some shorter shorts. Uh-huh. You know, let's yeah. try a whole new identity. Let's yeah. wear a lot of makeup, not a lot of makeup, but let's, let's yeah. do yourself up. Yeah. <laughs> so I did that and it was fun for a minute. Mm-hmm. But what I quickly noticed is that when I drank alcohol, and this is something I did notice my first time drinking alcohol, Mm -hmm. is the euphoria, the comfort, the social buffer 
it gave me was so like empowering. I was like, oh my gosh, this cognitive like mind chatter yeah. stopped. Yep. Finally. <laughs> the malady of the mind where I'm just constantly negative self-talk, it stopped. I didn't care what people thought of me. Um, and I let loose and I thought I was just so much more of a fun person to be around yeah. when I was drinking. Um, I felt so much more comfortable around people. Yeah. I was much more of a conversationalist. I could hold conversations better. I wasn't thinking about my insecurities. Yeah. So that reaction to alcohol became very attractive to me. Yeah. So quickly. Very quickly. You feel free. I felt very free. Yeah. It was quite a, um, it's like I fell in love, like mm. with something. It's like a That's very powerful. almost, and it turned quickly. I always think of my relationship to drugs and alcohol as like an insidious codependent relationship. Uh-huh. Comes on strong. Very strong. Yeah. Uh-huh. You know, I feel really like sexy and talkative and um, smart. It gave me this very altered sense of self. Yes. Kind of arrogant almost Mm -hmm. where all my life I'd felt very less than I almost felt more than it was a very wide pendulum swing and I was willing. I'd rather feel better than than less than. Yeah. And I'd gone 21 years feeling pretty less than. Yeah. That self-worth issue comes through in so many of these healing stories. Yeah really important to notice Mm -hmm. and it's hard to get to you really have to take a healing path from my what I've experienced to understand that deep sense of self-worth that's lacking Mm -hmm. in so many of these stories it's that ingrained core faulty self-belief that I am unlovable um I am not worthy I am not worthwhile I'm invisible um, it's just very, very, now that when I say it to myself, yeah. I kind of like, I, cause I don't believe that stuff anymore. I've done a lot of work, Yeah. but those were very prevalent themes in my mind Yeah. that were coming out and like, Oh, you don't look like, you know, you're not pretty. You're not smart. You're like, I have very negative self-talk Yeah. and it went away with alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so when that started, was it like one night a week, two nights a week? Did it ramp up? It ramped up quick? vast, like yeah. rapidly. So from one night, it went to three, (laughs) um, from three, it went to five. And what I started noticing is I was only a social drinker in the beginning. Mm -hmm. I began to isolate and buy alcohol and take it to my room. Oh yeah. That's That's a quick turnaround is when you start isolating and using or drinking, Mm -hmm. um, that's the big no. <laughs> like yeah. that's when it's something shifted. Um, what I noticed is I, when I wasn't drinking, my dopamine was so low. My serotonin in my mind was uh-huh. so low. I felt so depressed. Alcohol is a depressant. And I yes. was already predisposed for severe intermittent bouts of depression. So I would wake up severely depressed where I couldn't get out of bed. Yeah. And I would, I'd be like, okay, you got to go to school you got to do what you got to do, but tonight you can go and party and drink and meet guys and, you know, get that validation from men, which was a drug in and of itself as well. It would give me an actual dopamine rush. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Um, so before I knew it, um, and drugs hadn't found me yet, but this was just alcohol. And I was like, getting anxious, really anxious again, waking up at four in the morning, super panic attacks. That is something I know from my own experience and I've read a lot about now Mm -hmm. that although alcohol takes you down, like you've described and takes away the social anxiety and it's very, you know, in the moment, in the moment, Mm -hmm. especially if you're prone to anxiety, it comes raging back. And I know that 4am, I mean, part of the reason like I don't drink hardly at all anymore is because that anxiety that like one, I value my sleep so much as right. I get older. So and, vital. Um, but it's that anxiety is people don't know that because you think you're drinking to take the edge off. Mm-hmm. But then that edge comes back harder. Tenfold. It comes yeah. back like 
like I'm getting slapped in the face at 3, 8, 4 a.m. Yeah. Like, I don't know where I just wake up in a cold sweat. So anxious. Yeah. I also started to black out pretty quickly. I would drink to um, numb my internal pain. Okay. So it became a numbing mechanism. Um, and I, what I noticed, what's different for me than people who can drink normally mm-hmm. is they can stop. They can stop after one, two, even three, four yeah. drinks. Right. Maybe they'll drink five drinks and realize that was too much for me. I won't be doing that again. Well, (laughs) I'll drink five drinks and I'll have a bad experience. I'm a lightweight. Uh Um, And I'll be like, oh, I'm never going to do that again. You know, that was horrible. I will do it again. I will actually drink eight the next time because I want to black out. I want to alter my current state of reality. That's why I drink. Yeah. I don't drink just to socially. socially. No, it's because yeah. I want to change how I'm feeling mentally. That's yeah. the sole reason I drink. <sighs> That's yeah. why I can't pick up a drink today. Because yeah. if I do, I won't be able... I could go maybe a month drinking normally. But before I know it, um, I will have lost my job, mm. my, all my money. I won't be functional. I won't be able to eat. Mm-hmm. I'll have delirium tremens. Oh, right. Yeah. And I'll be addicted to drugs again. Cause I'll talk about alcohol now yeah. always in my story leads me to pretty hard drugs. And that's where things get very slow. unmanageable. Okay. So that, rewind a little, um, I'm in college, I'm drinking, I'm now drinking, isolating and drinking. Mm-hmm. I'm drinking alone. Um, I'm drinking now to just numb. Um, my friends are getting annoyed with me (laughs) that I'm always like blacking out on their watch. Like Uh it's very annoying to them. Rightfully so. (laughs) And you know, now I'm waking up in men's rooms. I don't know. Right. So now I'm putting myself in pretty precarious situations. Yeah. Um, I've gone from not kissing a boy to like, I don't even know what happened on my first sexual. I can't remember actually my first sexual encounter. I can't, it's unfortunate, (laughs) but that's, that's something addiction does Yeah, is it it was also starting to, I was on some medication for my depression. Mm -hmm. Well, I decided I don't need that medication. Alcohol helps. So I stopped taking my medication. I stopped calling my psychiatrist. I stopped going to therapy. I stopped showing up to classes Yeah, because I'm sleeping through my morning classes because I was out so late, yeah. like drunk, wasted. And yeah. um, I don't know how I did it. I'm a very, what I've learned about myself. I'm a very determined person. If I have yes. a goal in mind, I will get that goal done. I've always been that way. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I have to graduate college. Yeah. You know, this is, I was in denial. I believe, um, I knew there was addiction in my family. Mm-hmm. I was very aware of that history. But I was in denial that I had a problem. And that's also a very common factor with people who suffer from addiction is they're in denial. And that's been my experience. I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm a college student. Of course I'm drinking. It's, yeah. it's totally fine. <laughs> when deep yeah. down I knew there was something wrong. Right. And that's the cognitive that, dissonance yeah, going on. That disconnection within yourself. Yes. You can only live with for so long. Right. Yeah. Right. That lying to yourself. Mm-hmm. It's very potent. (laughs) Um, And so what happened, you know, I did finish my classes, A's and B's. Don't know how I did that, but I I was driven. Um, I went home. This is now the summer before my senior year of college. And, of course, I meet a guy. Mm -hmm. And online. (laughs) (laughs) On Tinder. I was candor. Just let me say, this is such a beautiful thing. Okay. Like it really. I'm very honest. It's amazing and beautiful, and I just want to say that. Keep going, but it is. Okay. It's it's. I'm I'm glad I can like be honest. That's been a saving grace of mine, actually. Absolutely. Honesty. Yeah. You shine the light on it. Yeah, you You have to shine it on there. Like it's it really is. It's just it's really. It takes the power away from it too. Yeah. So, I met this guy on Tinder, and. You know, he tells me, he's like, oh, you know, I have two months sober. And at the time, I wasn't aware of what sobriety really was. I wasn't aware of 12-step programs that help 
achieve that mm-hmm. sense of recovery and sobriety. Mm-hmm. So I didn't understand that two months sober was not a long time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was just like, oh, that's really nice. Yeah. Cool. And he would get me wine and he wouldn't drink. So looking back now as an adult, I was probably 22 at the time okay. and he was like 38. Okay. Yeah. That's so, a good age gap. That's a good age gap. Yeah. Um, I, I look at the time and I wish I could tell Taylor, the younger Taylor, like this person's taking advantage of you. But even if I could sense that, I almost was okay with it because he was getting me substances. Yeah. For free. Yeah. Right. And do you think this is just, this is the connection I make. Um, so let me know if I'm overstepping Tell, here, but yeah. that, that, that desire to be taken care of. Mm. Like when you see those relationships that are, you know, even in age or just that need to be loved. Like we seek out relationships. We want to be loved so much and ever it's yeah. in every single human. But that desire to be taken care of, I see that a lot. I can identify with that. Mm-hmm. And You're I, right on. Yeah. And I haven't looked at that very closely. Okay. But that's true. Um, where I didn't feel taken care of by my father. Mm-hmm. This is very stereotypical daddy issues, but right. they're very real. <laughs> I don't yeah. care how stereotypical no. and funny they sound. They're not to be taken lightly. Yeah. Um, because it ruined my life for a minute. Yeah. I allowed and what this yeah. book is so beautiful daughters of divorce it talks about how we don't have to continue the legacy of divorce mm-hmm. or it talks about how a lot of daughters of divorce tend to seek out emotionally unavailable men or men who aren't right for them who will take advantage of them because they don't know what real love is they weren't modeled that by their father yeah. very much during the divorce prior even so um but yeah i i did enjoy feeling admired by Mm -hmm. an older man. Mm -hmm. I enjoy, I've always liked older men. Mm -hmm. I think there's reasoning, Mm -hmm. very obvious reasoning behind that. Um, I did enjoy being given attention and being taken care of. He was Mm -hmm. paying for everything. I was a young, hot 22 year old. Mm -hmm. So I was able to use my female prowess Mm -hmm. to get what I wanted. And that's actually very another commonality as a woman in addiction, not everyone does it, but I definitely use my sexuality to manipulate men. Yeah. I'll be honest and get what I wanted yeah. and I'm not proud of it, but I was a very different person when I was in addiction. It was like yeah. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I was a completely different human yeah. than I am now. My, my brain chemistry was altered. <laughs> like I was Absolutely. not the same. I wouldn't do that today. It's yeah. just very interesting. So yeah, he did that. And you know, he quickly got me into marijuana. Mm. And I'm like, marijuana is just marijuana. Mm-hmm. Everyone smokes marijuana. Yeah. Yeah. In California, it's legal. Yeah, it's <laughs> California. Yeah. Alcohol and marijuana are widely accepted things people do to yeah. get the edge off and have fun. And we were, you know, I was frequenting the downtown Venice scene in LA, mm-hmm. <laughs> like that kind of group. I really yeah. liked the pot smoking. Um, so what did that feel like for you? Just from uh, different than alcohol, like what pot? When, yeah, when you talk about like the, taking the edge off or like it worked quicker okay. for me. Yeah, um, it immediately gave me um, it dulled my mind like that uh, very quickly. Whereas alcohol, I would like my stomach would hurt like yes. if I had a, like it, yeah. alcohol is such a um, a stringent like substance. Yeah, that's a good way um, to describe it. Yeah. It would burn my stomach almost. Mm-hmm. Like it was painful to consume. Yeah. But then one of course, once of course my mind got altered by the alcohol, I didn't feel the burning sensation anymore. Mm-hmm. So this was a lot more easily accessible for me to just yeah there turn it. It off. was very quick. It was a very quick altering of my yeah. state of reality. It was quicker. Yeah. And more powerful in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um. Because I wasn't just smoking a joint. I was like smoking quickly a bowl, maybe two or three a day. That's how, do you see how quickly now this is escalating? Yeah. Um, Then he introduced me to cocaine. (laughs) So that's. As a mother, that's the thing. And and I I mean, because I feel the societal, the same thing. Like society says this this and this is okay. Yeah. And the cocaine just scares the hell out of me. It's a very scary 
yeah. substance. Yeah. Um, that was my kryptonite. Yeah. Um, you know, it immediately altered everything. It put me into psychosis very quickly. I mean, within a couple weeks of using it, I started using it regularly. Um, when I first started, it was maybe twice a week, which is still a lot. <laughs> but then I would drink alcohol, uh, consume marijuana, and I wanted to feel up because the alcohol and marijuana was making me too low. Okay. So now I'm trying to self-medicate if uh -huh. you can see this happening. Yep. So if I ever felt depression, um, cocaine would help me feel really up and happy, you know, yeah. and give me energy. And I got addicted to that adrenaline high. Mm -hmm. that it would give me. Um, but that's really what unraveled my life very quick. Within 11 months, I was using other hard drugs I won't go into. Um, and I was put into an intensive rehabilitation program. So it took, within 11 months of being introduced to cocaine, I was like almost dead. So that's how quick was that a family intervention that took you to, yes. your, to rehab? Yes, because what happened is despite this drug use, I graduated college, Cal Poly, with a 3.5 GPA, which I was like kicking myself like, tell her you couldn't do mm -hmm. Well, I also had a severe drug addiction, yeah. right? So looking back, it's like, I, I don't know how I graduated, You're but really I would- good at over-functioning. Yes, because from a young age, I was yes. used to over-functioning. Yes. I was in a I dance company. <laughs> well, from a young age, I was like in a dance company at the age of 10. Mm -hmm. I was also competitively horseback riding, like show jumping. Yeah. I was doing those simultaneously, and I was getting straight A's. And that's how I thought my worth was shown, was my productivity and my achievement. Because it was modeled to me by my parents. Both my parents are very... Um, very intelligent, yeah. smart, like, um, ex like high achieving, high achieving adults. They're both litigators, mm -hmm. right? My mom has her own divorce yes. firm yes. and grant. We met. Yeah. That's how you met. Yes. She's very entrepreneurial, you know, very driven. She's genius. She's genius. And she understands people. Yeah. Like, and she, Which she is kept key. saying the two of us needed to meet and she was yeah. right. But yeah. Yeah. No, she understands people. She's very intuitive. She's yeah. not like a stereotypical attorney you'd think of who's like no, very she's got cold. she amazing or... people skills. She does. Yeah. My dad she does cares. too. Yeah. Yeah. My dad does too. And actually, I want to say my dad and I now have a great relationship. <laughs> like that's a beautiful thing. Yes. You know, it got fractured from the divorce. It caused me to suppress my feelings. And of course they came out very drastically later in my young adulthood through drug addiction and alcoholism. Um, but I want to give people hope that my relationships are healed now. Yeah. They are healed. It's beautiful. And yeah. those are the stories. That's what, I mean, everything you're saying tells me I love when I see what I believe in, this generational healing. Yes. It is so possible. Yeah. But the hard work that goes into it, the, the fact that you do not get to put a Band-Aid over something and expect that everything's going to be okay. Yeah. And it's not just an admission. It is a deep dive deep and what you are so you're articulating so beautifully like the, the grasp that you have on the, the journey you've been through is really yeah it's empowering and very impressive so I'm happy I can yeah, you know offer that with my story yeah because for a long time I was very ashamed of it I was <laughs> yeah shame shame Brene Brown and her shame. Uh, yes. You know? Exactly. And we're both fans. I yeah, we are that. fans. And yeah. I've given those books to my daughter, and she's now a fan, and it is it is at the root, and I never knew it. Yeah. Being ashamed of anything we've done. I mean, we're all human. We make mistakes. Yes. And the way that you're talking about your story with that, that you, you have let go of the shame, I can feel it. It's, it's amazing. I have because, and it I didn't let go of it easily. Yeah. You know, it plagued me. For a long time. Um, but, you know, I really quick, I'll go back to my story and I'll show yeah. you how I overcame that shame. Is I went into rehab three weeks after graduating Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. Mm -hmm. um, because during my graduation, I was high. I was 
it was wow. not a good thing. It was not a good thing. My family could see it. I thought I was hiding it so well too. That's, oh, that's the fallacy that. right there is like, as an addict, you think yes. you're hiding it so well, but no, they can see when you're like walking and you're like locking, I was locking myself out of my apartment. I locked myself out of my apartment three times in a row. Oh wow. While they were all in town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. <laughs> like yeah. I was so I think I was in a slight psychosis looking back. Mm -hmm. I would be rushing around getting my graduate dress on and um, I would like slam my door and I'd lock myself out of the apartment. <laughs> like, I, don't even, I can laugh at it now. But that becomes very inconvenient quickly. It was very. you're calling somebody I'm calling again, my dad. Again. Of all people, yeah. my dad. Uh -huh. I'm like, dad, I locked myself out of the apartment. And he's like, again? Uh -huh. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. I'm just stressed oh, out. I just, I just, I'm like, I'm just stressed uh -huh. out. Right. Um, so my graduation ceremony was horrible yeah. for Cal Poly and I'm, that's something I'll always be bummed out about. Mm -hmm. I'm not ashamed of it anymore, <laughs> but it was very embarrassing. Mm -hmm. I thought I lost my wallet on the grounds of the graduation yeah. ceremony. Mm -hmm. And so I was walking around asking people more all it was. I was like, it was somewhere not, else. Yeah. Somewhere else. Yeah. I was, I was also, um, detoxing because I hadn't used cocaine in maybe 48 hours. Mm. And what happens is I would get really jittery, right? I'd start being very forgetful, locking myself out of places really sweaty. Like, mm. um, I couldn't eat by the way. I was probably 30 pounds lighter than I am oh now. It was not a good look. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was, my face was like ashen pale. Uh -huh. Um, there was no like youthful glow to my skin. Like yes. there was nothing cause my yeah. body was dying. Yeah. Physiologically at 22. Two. Yeah. Yeah. It's a scary thought. It's a very scary thought. Yeah. And, um, I'd also always had pride in like my appearance and stuff. I think I was modeled that by my mom who's very beautiful and I was modeled that by Manhattan Beach. My dad was very handsome and it's all about appearance. I remember my mom telling me like, it's very important how you appear and present in the world. Mm -hmm. And I thought I looked great. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with this? I think I look like super hot. Like, you know, I, I was just such in a different state of reality very altered yeah chemically yeah and all i just needed help yeah and i didn't know i needed help and i wanted to continue to use so i went home okay and for three weeks i um basically didn't come home and i'd found so this is post graduation yeah. but before you went to rehab correct okay so that's a very specific three-week period yes um i found a very dark group of people um, very unscrupulous individuals in like Hermosa beach. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, a lot of bad things happened and I'm lucky to be alive, mm. but it was a very scary situation. And I remember, um, my, I, I did go back home. Thank God. Cause my mom's like, you know, there's this outpatient program. I really want you to think about and I was like, oh yeah, maybe, you know, but how were your parents dealing with it at that point? Because they knew what was going on. Yeah, obviously. But as a parent, I mean, it's, it's terrifying to be you, but it's also terrifying to be them. Yes. So was she like, was it a gentle conversation? Was it a hands-off conversation? How In the that? beginning, yeah. it was gentle. Huh. It was, how do I approach my daughter who's dying in front of me slowly, but also quickly. Yeah. Um, so she took me to lunch and I remember like I was forcing myself to eat. Cause when you're on my experiences, when I was on stimulants for so long, my taste buds were altered. I couldn't taste food anymore. It tasted mm. like cardboard. Oh, wow. My appetite was gone. Like yeah. there was, it's hard for me to even drink water. Like it just, any substance in my body other than the drug mm -hmm. didn't feel right. <laughs> um, and that's what happens with addiction is you, have severe cravings for the substance when it's no longer in your body, your tolerance increases. So I was doing more and more cocaine, um, on the daily. And, um, I was starting to get nosebleeds, mm. <laughs> which was really disturbing to me. Actually, yeah. that actually freaked me out, yeah. which was interesting because yeah. I hadn't really 
been aware of how pale I was or like it's some, my it's like I had beer goggles on like I wasn't uh-huh. seeing myself clearly yeah. but once my body actually started to show physical like rejection breakdown. and breakdown yeah. and yeah. deterioration it's gross but it did start to scare me yeah rightfully so okay. Uh, now that I'm healthy, if there's any sign of like any, I, I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, I'm you know, hyper aware, yes, yeah, absolutely. too aware sometimes yeah. when yeah. it's like, no, Taylor, you're fine. Yeah. But at this time, yeah, that freaked me out. She took me to lunch. I was forcing myself to eat. She took me, um, to an outpatient program. I did sit and do the interview and I realized she's trying to get me in here. And I was so like, <laughs> rebel. my brain was so like, no. Yeah. No, you need to continue to do what you're doing, right? Because I was so heavily addicted yeah. to cocaine. It wasn't even alcohol anymore. Yeah. Or marijuana. It was cocaine specifically. Yeah. Um, I ran away. <laughs> like I literally ran on my feet from the facility said, no, and I got no high. Chance. And I found my ex-boyfriend, who was my, now my ex. Um, he picked me up and we went and got high mm-hmm. and he wasn't sober anymore. Of course, the mm-hmm. two months sober, right. like that didn't last very long. Yeah. Um, and so what happened is my dad found me <laughs> at my, he knew where my ex lived. So he went to the house mm-hmm. and he said, if you don't come out and come with us to this program, we're going to put you on a sober living. He's very honest with me yeah. up front. He goes, we are cutting you off financially. Um, you are not welcome in our lives anymore. And it's as if you are dead to us. Wow. Because they were preparing at this point for me to die. Yeah. It was very, I was getting very sick too. Like, um, my lung, like <laughs> I was inhaling so much cocaine. Yeah. If you think about it, okay. it was hurting my lungs oh my at this gosh. point. I was really sick now physically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, my body was, um, now rebelling against me because it's like, okay, yeah. my mind was hyper on getting drugs, but my body was rebelling. Yeah. And um, I went, remember like trying to go to doctors and being like, what's wrong with me? And they were like, you know, talking, doctors would talk to each other. Like she has a drug addiction probably is what they were saying. Yeah. Um, and they're like, we can't help you. Like there's nothing. I'm like, is there anything you can give me? And they're like, No. And they looked really uncomfortable because they could tell I was addicted. Yeah. Um, but when my dad, specifically my dad, told me um, that, I got in the car with him. Mm-hmm. And I had less than an hour to go home and pack my belongings um, that were still packed from college <laughs> um, <clears throat> and move into this female sober living in the South Bay. That was a very militant behavioral modification program. Mm-hmm. Um, and be enrolled in an outpatient program, drug rehabilitation. Um, I didn't really have a choice. I felt so back to your question. Um, I was fearful of being cut off financially. Um, another affliction of the, of addiction is you're very selfish, very Mm self-absorbed because all you think about, all I thought about was what can I get for me? What can I get? I don't care that it's killing my parents. Yeah. No matter the love I have for my parents, which I had plenty, the addiction overrides it. Mm-hmm. That's something <clears throat> I think that is such an important thing for people to hear who are in the throes of this. Mm-hmm. That <clears throat> you're not, it's not a conscious choice to, no. to say, I don't love you or yeah. I'm doing this to you. Right. It's not, that's not the that's not correct because fully, I believed fully when I was in the throes of my addiction, I was only doing it to myself. I fully believed that. Like I fully, fully believed and I made myself believe it was crazy phenomena, but I fully believed I'm only hurting Taylor and I'm actually okay with that. Um, I'm not hurting them because they're not the ones, their bodies aren't suffering from the physical drug abuse. You don't have that ability to see the connections. No, I didn't. I did not have the ability to see how horridly I was impacting my loved ones. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a theory out there of addiction is a choice versus a disease of the mind. Uh And it's very complex because there is a choice involved. Today I'm over two years sober now. I have a very intentional choice 
to pick up a drink or a drug. That's on me. That's my responsibility. Yeah. However, once I do pick up the drink or drug, usually it's alcohol for me first, then drugs will follow. Uh Once that substance, that mind altering chemical hits my bloodstream, my power of choice now is gone. gone. It's gone. It's nil and none. Um, It doesn't matter how much I love my family. It doesn't matter if I'm in a relationship and I love my partner. It doesn't matter. I don't have children, but if I had children, nothing, my, my very intense desire to succeed in life, that doesn't matter anymore because what happens is my brain, Mm -hmm. it's a malady of the the mind, the addiction, the disease of addiction. Now it's a disease. It's now my disease, which right now is in remission because I'm not using or drinking, but it will flare if I put any substance in me. And I will revert immediately back to where I was. That was a really clear description. And I've never heard it broke down like that. Yeah. The choice and the disease. It's not either or. Right. Like there's a choice choice first and the disease is in, and you know, the disease is there. Yes. But once it's that once I'm as we call it, once I'm on the run, I'm off. Um, so it's not fair to be like, Oh, I don't have any choice in the matter. I do have a choice to pick yeah. up. Yeah. Right. But once it's in me, no, no more choice. So how, and I, maybe I'm jumping ahead here, but how do you manage that today? That day by day choice? Mm, that's a good question. How do I manage the choice to not pick up? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I am in a 12 step recovery program. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've taught me very clearly that Taylor's will, if I just go by my will, things are not going to work out (laughs) Yeah, because addiction is self will run riot. It's like my will and my ego has completely run rampant. (laughs) Like Mm -hmm. I will bulldoze anyone down in my path to get my drugs or my drink because that's what my brain tells me I need to do. And I am a complete puppet to the disease in my mind of addiction. So how I handle that is I'm able to think back to the extreme wreckage I caused my family. Mm-hmm. I now love myself. Yeah, that's huge. <laughs> um, I've really been in a lot of therapy and I've worked a lot on remedying those core faulty belief systems that I adopted when my parents got divorced, which is very common for daughters of divorce to adopt feeling less than unlovable, unworthy of love, fear of abandonment, failure, rejection, fear of vulnerability and intimacy because you don't want to be seen because you're afraid you're going to be rejected. I've been able to really look at those face on Mm -hmm. and challenge them and say that those are not true. Those aren't true. And those core beliefs used to drive my addiction. Yeah. So how I handle it, once again, I keep going a little tangential, but I handle it by, I do, um, pray. I call it God. Um, I pray to something greater than me Yeah. and it's not a human. It's nothing that's like fallible humans are all fallible. I don't pray. You know, I used to be in very codependent male relation, uh, mm-hmm. relationships. And, you know, I would pray like for that person to take care of me and they'll keep me sober. And I realized today my higher power keeps me sober. Mm-hmm. And what helps me stay sober too is being of service to people yeah, and getting out of me <laughs> because another thing of addiction is it's a very self-absorbed malady. Right. Right. So if I'm just focusing on Taylor, me, 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 I'm not going to let like a drink and a drug will start to sound really good. And I have to be really on top of this. I am never free from, um, going back relapse. I'm not ever, (laughs) it's, it's unfortunate, but like, I, I don't have the capability ever in this lifetime for me to be free of potentially relapsing. So I have to take actionable steps every day to be of service to other people mm-hmm. to not isolate mm-hmm. because isolating is something where my brain starts to run kind of crazy. Yes. The mind chatter. Yes. Um, 
chitta, I believe, as they call it in yoga, right? So I do a lot of yoga and movement. Dance was always such a beautiful cathartic expression for me. Mm -hmm. I don't dance anymore, but I've been able to incorporate the beautiful practice of yoga, you know, to expel energy. I'm a person with a lot of energy. (laughs) So what happened in my past with addiction is the energy imploded. I didn't have anywhere I was there was no outlet for it. There was no healthy outlet. So instead I would go to dance floors and like dance, you know, and expel that energy, of course, under the influence of Mm -hmm. substances or like run around with guys, expelling the energy that way, Mm -hmm. like not healthy. So today I just really remember where my disease can take me because I remember too, it's not a matter of Like, I just want to be sober. It's a matter of life or death because I'm aware if I relapse, I will die. Yeah. I don't want to die. No. I don't want my parents to bury their child. They don't deserve that. No. So the love of my parents, but my, I relapsed after my first time getting sober and I only did it for my parents. That's the reason I wasn't getting sober for myself. I was getting sober to please my parents because I'm a people pleaser. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And I was like, okay, they want me to get sober. Yeah. I, I, you know, I want to get them off my back. And I was also scared of not being supported financially. Mm-hmm. See very selfish intentions. Yeah. yeah. Um, but another root mm-hmm. chakra issue. Yeah. 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 That's true. I haven't really yeah. ever thought about it correlated to the root chakra yeah. as much as I can. And this is really helpful. Okay. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I'll look more into that yeah. because there's a theme you're seeing coming up, mm-hmm. the root chakra being disabled, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uprooted. Um, so yeah, that's, that's what I found uh-huh. helps me. So you and I talked off camera on about that relapse between yeah. rehab and doing that for your parents. Yeah. And then, uh, I believe you called it a God shot. God shot. (laughs) Oh, what happened there? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Totally. This was the night of March, March, March 31st, 2021. Because I got my two years sober. Two years ago. Yeah. April 1st is my sobriety date. Okay. Um, so yeah, this is, I believe you asked me prior, um, what led me to need to get help. What brought me there? Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So I remember that night I was very high <laughs> on drugs. Um, I just had a plus post your first rehab that you did for your, parents. yes, I got 18 months sober. My first sobriety. Okay. We'll call it my first sobriety. Mm-hmm. I got 18 months sober and then I met a guy and <laughs> it was not a healthy functional relationship, which is a commonality that daughters of divorce go through. Right. Mm-hmm. And I relapsed over our breakup. Plus COVID had just hit. Oh. This was 2019. Yes. Yeah. It was 2020. I believe it was one of those. <laughs> okay. yeah. It gets fuzzy. 2020 now. was COVID. So March of. So it would have been 2020 when I relapsed okay. because I got sober in 2019 and I had 18 months. Sober. Okay. So it would have been 2020. Okay. Um, I relapsed and, um, it was really awful. I would get 30 days sober, 30 after 30 days, I would relapse and I would get 30 days on 30 days off. Mm. And this would continue for months. Mm -hmm. It was really awful. (laughs) Talk about feeling out of control when I'm kind of a control freak because my life was so out of control at a young age and drugs gave me some semblance of control. At least is that's what I thought I could alter my state of being that's control. Until you can't. (laughs) Until now, drugs have control of me. Right. Um, So that was a very awful experience for me. Um, And then I went to a sober living. I ran away from that sober living Mm -hmm. because I wasn't ready to get sober. And that's another thing and I think is important for loved ones to understand about if they have a loved one who's in addiction. Mm -hmm. If they don't want to get sober, they will not get sober. It doesn't matter how much you try to intervene. If the person who is afflicted with addiction does not want to get sober, it's heartbreaking, but there's no one who will make them right. You can do interventions. They tried that on me. I ran away from it (laughs) I mean, because I was so messed up. Like I was so like, I just need drugs. That's all 
my brain wanted. It's like Maslow's hierarchy of needs got flipped. Yep. Food, shelter, water, relationships mm-hmm. didn't matter anymore. Drugs were at the very top over water. <laughs> like it was yeah. insane. Yeah. Um, yeah. So relapsed on and off. Finally, that night of March 31st, I came back 2021. Mm. Um, I remember if I put another inkling of a substance in my body, I had this overwhelming fear and knowing it was a very intense intuition. I would die. I just, I can't, it's a, it's what I call a God shot. Uh It's like something more intelligent than me, like omniscient, omnipotent, Uh an energy like was it's like a voice was screaming at me. It wasn't mine. It was telling me, if you do this, you will die. And your mother, I was in at home mm-hmm. at the time, but your mother's going to come down and find her daughter a corpse mm. on the ground. Mm. Like, do you really want that? And that's where my lo- love over actually overcame the addiction because I thought, for once of someone else than me. And I don't know how, that's why it's a God shot yeah. because I was so consumed by this self-absorbed addiction. Mm-hmm. There's no way in that altered state of mind I could think of someone else other than me, but I did. Yeah. Something more powerful. It was so beautiful actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it could have been very tragic, but it turned out to be very beautiful because I flushed the drugs I was going to use <laughs> down the toilet. Something like took agency of my body, walked me to the toilet, flushed it. I went up to my mom and my mom of course knew at the time she didn't want me at the house, but I was there and it was horrible. I I went to her and I said, look, I need help. Yeah. What a moment. That was a huge moment. And she looked at me going, yes, you do. Yeah. And she called my dad and a beautiful thing actually that came out of my addiction is it brought my parents, they had, they were forced to co-parent again Mm. and be in the same room with each other and not want to rip each other's throats out. Like they were able to come together and be effective communicators with each other because they were trying to save their daughter. And I'm not saying I went into addiction knowingly, like I'm going to do this because then my parents are going to get, like, it wasn't planned or calculated, but I did see that happen. And I've had my mom actually tell me and tell me, um, like, you know, it was a gift. It brought us, it was, we were able to co-parent when they had such a hostile, horrible divorce, they were able to come together and save and work together to get me to rehab. So I went to Texas. Okay. (laughs) Well, I first went to detox Uh and I was willing at this point because this past relapse over two years ago was so bad that it was a hell. I don't, I don't wish upon my worst enemy. Yeah. To be honest. Um, and I was ready to be done. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But now it wasn't just for my parents. It was for me because I'm like, Taylor, you don't, deserve this. Yeah. You don't deserve this. Like you don't deserve to treat yourself like this. You don't. So it was very painful (laughs) to go to detox. You know, I'm not saying the process was easy, but I did know that core belief in me. I challenged of you're not worthwhile or deserving. I challenged it. And I was like, no, Taylor, you are deserving to live. Yeah. And I also that night came to a point where I realized I couldn't live with drugs and I couldn't live without them. So I was in a very horrible middle ground that no one ever wants to be in. It's like a hell. It's an actual hell on earth. I believe we can create our own hell. Yeah. And I had. (laughs) So I've been to hell and back. And I was like, okay, I have to get sober. There's more purpose for me in this life. Clearly. (laughs) And that is, (laughs) I mean, it's hard to look at these incredible, I mean, I've had chills this entire time because as a mother, you're such a beautiful girl. And I have such a strong connection with mothers and daughters. And I was telling you that before we started, like they're just... There's yeah. something so empowering about female energy and the mother-daughter story. And not yeah. that my boys love them to death. But they're like that story of you and your mom and just seeing how you guys are today. Yeah. And knowing that you've been to hell and back. She and, has too. And she, it, 
Yeah. The parents. Yeah. And, but those silver linings <laughs> that come out of the worst stories, they're, they're always there. They are. Because there's something bigger than us. Yeah. And you're doing exactly what, why we go through these hard things and then are able to tell our stories. You can empower so many other people to walk through that same hell and yeah. get better. Right? Because yeah. today, like, I'm sober. I overcame a lethal addiction. <laughs> um, I'm in graduate school again. My relationships that were very breached and fractured have been healed because I'm showing up the way I am showing up today. Yeah. Because I am being of service to other people. Um, it's a really beautiful thing. And, you know, I'm actually happy I went through what I did because what a place to get to. Yes. Because I can now help other young women. Yeah. Anyone really like who's suffering from addiction. And when I become an LMFT, which yes. I'm in school for, yes, I can help them go through the throes of the mental turmoil that comes with addiction and move through those faulty core beliefs. Yeah. And it, it there's hope. I want to tell other people who have an addiction problem, if they're listening, like there is hope. You just have to be willing, yeah, open and honest as an addict who's in addiction. If you want help, I'll say it again. You have to be open, honest, and willing to get help. And if you are, there are ample opportunities to help you out yeah. there. Facilities, rehab, anything like that. 12 step programs, um, People yeah. who are loved ones who have a loved one suffering from addiction. Uh, you know, I recommend taking care of yourself. Um, if the addict in question is ready for help and willing <laughs> to get help, direct them to a facility that can help them. You know, I think it's really important going to your own support groups to help you deal with the codependency because addiction is a family disease. Yeah. It's not just the addict. Yeah. There's a lot of codependency usually in a family. There's a lot of enabling in a family. Absolutely. That can be unconscious yeah. and it's no one's fault. It's just, it's a family system dysfunction. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and this is what generational healing is all about. Yeah. That's, um, there's so much, I feel like we, we could talk for hours. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, two things. Um, one, I want people to check out this book because you've yeah. spoken so highly about it and um, like your best takeaway from Daughters of Divorce. I love Daughters of Divorce. I think it's written, it is written by a mother and a daughter. Um, a takeaway is it's very important to, as an adult, I recommend this book for adult Daughters of Divorce. Yes. Okay. Good distinction. I think that's very yeah. important. Mm -hmm. um, you've had time to kind of process the divorce. It's important as an adult daughter of divorce to look at the divorce from an adult perspective mm -hmm. and not be so enmeshed in it as a child. Yeah. It's important to look at father-daughter wounds that haven't been healed mm -hmm. and to look at them clearly as an adult, whether it be through therapy, counseling, um, self-examination. Yeah. Another important takeaway from daughters of divorce is forgiving mm. parents because parents are fallible. They're just people. Yeah. And I remember when I came to that realization as an adult, like my parents are just people. They're yeah. not these like omnipotent beings where, that I thought of when I was a little girl. Right. I looked at parents as parents, not people. Forgiveness is so important. It doesn't mean condoning bad behaviors. It doesn't mean condoning my, you know, emotional abuse, but forgiving the past is so important. Healing father daughter wounds is so important. Um, as we've seen in my addiction story, there's a theme of me, um, seeking out very unavailable, emotionally unavailable men, mm -hmm. um, emotionally abusive men. And I won't drop any names of course, but that's been my pattern. Yes. And I've, decided since I'm in school now, I'm taking a break from relationships because another takeaway from this is learning, which I'm still working on to really love yourself. Yeah. Cause you can only be in a healthy, loving relationship if you love yourself. 
You can't go into a relationship, and it talks about it in the book. Mm. You can't go into a relationship wanting the other person to validate that you're lovable. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. That's codependency, yeah. and it's just rife for so many problems. Issues. <laughs> and generational patterns. Exactly. Keep. Also, yeah. um, it talks about in the book that we, daughters of divorce, do not have to keep the legacy of divorce going through generations. We don't have to be a prisoner of our past. You know, our past doesn't have to dictate our futures. Yeah. We can have loving relationships. Yeah. Like there's hope. Everybody, yeah. Yeah, if you do the work. Yeah, and the work is hard. Yes. But it's also super empowering and interesting. And you meet the most incredible people. And as you start to expand that healing community, Mm -hmm. you're lifted up. So you are, yes, making choices for yourself and on your own. Yes. But you're being supported by a community of people with like minds and like hearts that can... Because we do need to be connected. Yes. Like we're, we're wired for human connection. And that at the yeah. root of everything I'm doing is something that I realized that human connection is just something that one, I've always craved. And two, it's so important to every single person out there. It's and vital. Everyone's got a story. I mean, we're, be, we're not meant to isolate. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're human beings. We're not meant to isolate. We're meant to be around people and connect yeah. and have a community. Yeah. Um, you know, it talks about themes in there that, um, you know, fears of abandonment, Mm -hmm. um, difficulty with like intimacy, Mm -hmm. not just, not really sexual, more like vulnerability. Yeah. Emotional vulnerability is really hard for daughters of divorce. And I'm not saying every daughter of divorce is like that. It's just a theme. They did a lot of samplings of like 300 daughters of divorces and they came up with these themes. And you definitely see these patterns in the world. It's yeah. 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 The science will back up the experience. Yes. Yeah. It's I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but those can be overcome. Absolutely. With self-examination. Yeah. And work. Yeah. It takes work. Yeah. Um, but the work is worthwhile. Completely. Completely. Yeah. So I think forgiving too is really important. Just forgiving your parents and yeah. realizing that, you know, it's not my fault. If I could go back when I was younger, what I would tell myself is, don't go for someone that doesn't deserve you. Yes. Like you deserve more than you think. Oh, that's huge. Um, you're lovable, you're worthwhile, and you're seen. I always thought I was invisible, but like I'm seen. Wow. Don't settle for less than what I deserve is what I was trying to say. Absolutely. Yeah. And you just answered the question that I always <laughs> ask. Which is, what is a piece of advice you could give to your younger self? That was brilliant. Yeah. This whole interview has been pieces of advice. Yeah. We'll send so many people. Good. And for that, I cannot thank you enough. This is a topic that is so close to my heart and yeah. something that I know is affecting so many families out there. And your this conversation is full of hope and optimism and the work that goes into making that story true. So good. I am like (laughs) so in awe of your journey and I know it's a day by day proposition and choice. And we're always, you know, these connections we're here. I I love everything you're doing. And thank you, Wendy. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you. That you invited me on. Check out daughters of divorce. It's a good one. And, um, just thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm, I'm honored and humbled really. Well, I'm honored you had me. Thank you. This was such an incredible interview. And I just thank you guys so much for joining us on what I meant to say. Um, There is so much gold in this. I hope you'll check it out. And we are just here to remind you to be real, be you, and be better. Thank you for joining us on what I meant to say. Another production of Inspired Edutainment brought to you by Be Better Media.